0: Gone, we whispered, introduced to the searing truth of agony. But is he gone? The psalms echo his presence, recount the prophecy of a forever spent with our Lord, our lover, our friend. Gone? Touch me, he told Thomas. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Believe. And so we gather, some from pleasant places, others dark, but each blessed to celebrate the joy-bringer who teaches our hearts to sing still. We look forward The meanwhile cherishing now as he walks in lockstep with us. Seen only in glimpses perhaps, but here. Snug in the arms of the beloved, we share the story. Spread word of his singular promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you.
1: Am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them, and said, "Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven." Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, "We've seen the Lord." But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I won't believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God,
2: and that by believing, you may have life in His name. For those of you who uh, are newer to Madison Street Church and may not have recognized that masked man uh, who just read the Scripture passage, uh, Hutch Goodman and his wife Rachel and their five children worship with us Uh, for several years uh, and uh, left for Portland about two years ago. And uh, he was here uh, for a wedding uh, last night, for Ryan and Kelly's wedding, and uh, uh, stuck around. So Hutch, great to have you with us this morning. Thanks for reading. I think it's always dangerous to talk about resilience. So we've been indulging in dangerous stuff for a number of months here. Because I think we have this notion of resilience as some form of perfection when in reality resilience is the ultimate home of losers. Resilience requires that we've messed up because resilience is about how we handle the times in our life when it doesn't go our way, when it doesn't come together, when it doesn't work. Resilience is not the same thing as perfection. A resilient batter on a baseball team is not a natural 300 hitter. Roy Hobbs was not all that resilient. The resilient one is the one who goes up and keeps swinging until he hits the ball. Who keeps at it. We live in an age that requires resilience to be people of faith. Because everything about our culture mitigates against having faith. Everything about our culture says to us who gather on Sunday morning in a place like this, Are you crazy? There are so many other things you could be doing that, that are altruistic and beneficial and nurturing and useful. And yet, here we are gathered here trying to be resilient because we know we've messed up Winston Churchill often gets portrayed in our history as this great savior of Western civilization the reality is Churchill faced a lot of hard realities in life Churchill couldn't balance his checkbook to save his soul he was constantly in debt, uh, probably liked Brandy too early in the morning to be uh, a fully functioning adult by the evening. And yet, in the face of growing fascism in Europe in the 1930s, the ultimate of cynicism, Churchill, Churchill could have said, forget about it. I've had my turn in high office. I've done my duty. I'm going to retire and just let the world go on by. Instead, at 70, he says yes to the king's invitation to form a unity government in the face of a world war. But even before then, in the 30s, he lobbied Parliament and he wrote and he spoke out. And he nearly got killed in a traffic accident. He was so intent on marking his speech as he crossed a street in New York City that he got run over by a cab. And none of it was to any avail. Fascism grew. England didn't prepare. He could have been a very cynical old man who just said, whatever. He could have said no thanks to the Prime Ministry office, but he faced his own cynicism, and his own depression, and his own struggles, and he went forward. And while every general on the British general staff would cringe when Churchill showed up in the map room because he didn't know anything about military operations, He knew one thing. He knew how to inspire people. And he took a demoralized, battered, under siege British island. And he said, never, 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 never give up. I don't have anything to offer you. But blood and sweat and tears. Never give up. Now, is that just the mawkish comments of an old geezer who doesn't know when he's beaten? Is it unfounded optimism in the face of reality? I mean, by every objective standard, on the military balance sheets of the day, England should have thrown in the towel and they didn't they never 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 gave up that's the difference between cynicism and faith cynicism reminds us that all that really matters is the sensory data in front of us all that that matters is if you're a pastor, all that matters, you're told, are butts and benches and bucks and baskets. That's what you measure. That's what you work towards. That's what you figure out how to increase. All that matters in our world is am I happy? And the way we know whether we're happy or not is whether we feel happy, whether our senses tell us we are happy. And it's easy in our post-everything world, our post-modern, post-industrial, post-Christendom world to let cynicism be the watchword. To allow our senses to dictate what we believe. Because cynicism says to us, there is no story. There is no story that we share together. There is no narrative that binds us to one another. We simply have what's in front of us, and we live into that. This morning there are two passages of Scripture we want to look at, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, that speak into our tendencies to live as cynics and invite us to live another way. The first passage, Psalm 16, unpacks the faith of this Hebrew believer in Yahweh begins with a confession of faith, a petition, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Now we, again, have a kind of Sunday school shaped reading of the Psalms, like all of the Hebrews of the ancient world were well-dressed, middle-class white Americans sitting in rows in church on a Sunday morning. They weren't. They weren't. We know from the archaeological record that, that until, until the Hebrews came back from exile, they were, they were a challenged people religiously. The Hebrew people worshipped all kinds of gods. Yahweh was one of them. And for many of the ancient Hebrews, they couldn't quite get their mind around the idea that there was one God who was invisible, who did not manifest himself as an idol to be worshipped, but called upon a different kind of obedience. And they struggled with that. And so for the psalmist in Psalm 16 to say, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge, is to make a radical statement, then and now. (laughs) Disregard the technical difficulties. (laughs) Uh, Ah, thank you. And so the psalmist begins with this petition. I take refuge in you, Yahweh. Not in Baal, not in Chemosh, not in, not in Dagon and the, the gods of the Philistines, but in you, Yahweh. That's a radical statement. Then and now. And that leads to a set of declarations in verses 2 through 4. You are my God. Apart from you I have no good thing. In this beautiful summary that we've heard over and over again through the years, Lord, you've assigned me my portion and my cup. You've made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. God, because of you, life comes together. The, The stuff I own isn't the stuff that makes me who I am. The stuff I own is a symbol of your engagement in my life we far too easily in our cynical age fall into the trap of saying the stuff i have that's me i got it i earned it i bought it it's mine i made that i built that it's mine no nothing we have done the psalmist says nothing we have the psalmist says nothing we own the psalmist says comes to us apart from the graciousness of God. Nothing. All of it is God's hand in our lives. And that leads the psalmist then to to giving thanks, to realizing the godly heritage that he has, that... That taking instruction from Yahweh is what he will do. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. Even when I should be asleep, I hear the voice of God speaking into my heart. The psalmist then promises his devotion. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. There is more to life, the psalmist says, than what I can see and smell and hear and taste and touch. There is this invisible, eternal, unyielding, always present Yahweh who will be with me no matter what. And so I can face it and not be shaken. And that leads the psalmist in verses 9 through 11 to unpack a good life. My heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will rest secure because you will not abandon me. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. There's a realization here that life with God is superior to life without God. There's an understanding that that even in ancient Israel, there was a choice to be made. Will I walk with Yahweh or not? Will I walk in God's presence or not? And the psalmist declares his intent to walk with God no matter what. Our second text, John 20. 19 to 31, is a story that we have familiarity with. The story of Jesus commissioning the disciples and Thomas not being present and Thomas doubting that commission and then experiencing Jesus. And there is, I think we overlook the fact that this is John's great commission. Just as surely as Matthew ends his gospel with, go into all the world and preach the gospel, John's gospel comes to an end point with this story. Jesus appearing in front of the ten disciples at that point and saying, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Now, how did the Father send Jesus? John chapter 1. The word... The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. It's the Father sent me, Jesus said, so I'm sending you to incarnate, to in flesh, God's work in the world. It's a missional call. It's the Father has sent me, so I send you. But what's the nature of that missional call? Well, for Matthew, it's to baptize, teach. But John has a different slant. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. John gives us a mission of forgiveness. Really? Couldn't I just baptize and teach. That'd be so much easier. Forgiveness, really? I have to forgive people? Really? I don't want to forgive. Forgiving's not fun. Because because it doesn't say forgive those who ask for it. It doesn't say forgive those who make things right with you. It doesn't say when you're wounded uh, make sure they're ready for forgiveness before you are. It just says if you forgive, and it's that, that wonderful Greek conditional clause, if you forgive the sins of anyone and you will, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them and you won't, they are not forgiven. Jesus isn't giving us a, a choice in the, in the Greek construction of this passage. He's, he's laying out for us our mission. Our mission is to Forgive. It could be anything else but that. Because I don't like to forgive. I'm an eight on the Enneagram. We have a conflict that's either going to make us really good friends or really good enemies. But forgiving, is that's hard. And I suspect for some of you, even if you're not eights on the Enneagram, forgiveness can be hard. But Jesus lays that out as the mission of the disciples going forward. That apostolic ministry forgives. The mission of the church is to forgive. We think, we think in 21st century America that the mission of the church is to judge, and it is not. The mission Jesus gives the church is to forgive. Forgive. Of course, Thomas isn't there. And the other disciples tell him, hey, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas, being a bit of a cynic, remember John chapter 14, uh, 13, Jesus gets ready to go to Jerusalem, and Thomas says, oh yeah, let's go to Jerusalem so that we can die with him too. Thomas is the cynic of the 12. He knows the political realities. He lives in the midst of what he can see and smell and hear and taste and touch. And the disciples come to him with this crazy story. We've seen the Lord. Thomas goes, no way. There's no way you've done that. Unless I I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I'm not gonna believe. Because it's all about what I can sense. A week later, we read the disciples are in the house again. The doors are locked again. Jesus came and stood there among them again. Peace be with you. Jesus has a real sense of humor. Every time he shows up in the post-resurrection context, he says, peace be with you. Really? Uh, Jesus, we saw you die and you show up and you're alive and You want us to be at peace about that. It's a little little scary. It's a little off putting. It agitates us a little bit. Jesus says, Peace be with you. And then he calls Thomas over. Put your finger in my side. Put your hands and put your put your fingers in my nail marks. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas replies, In belief, my Lord and my God. And John concludes this story with this editorial framing, the way John often does in his gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. John doesn't try to tell the whole story about Jesus. He's trying to tell a story about how we can believe in Jesus. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing You may have life in his name. The point of the biblical story is to invite us to discipleship. The point of the biblical story isn't to have all the scientific questions answered, to have all the doubt removed, to have all uncertainty dealt with. It's to invite us to discipleship, to invite us into the journey, to invite us to follow Jesus daily in life. And in the midst of that call, between that call and that belief, there will be doubt. That's the Thomas story. I think every one of us has faced those moments where we, stuff happens, life happens to us, and we begin to doubt. Really, is this stuff, is this stuff true? Is it trustworthy? Can I rely... On it, does it make me resilient? Can I face tomorrow? We all struggle with doubt and cynicism. We're all Thomas. And Christ comes to us in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of our, our leaning on our sensory perceptions and saying, there's no way Jesus rose from the dead. That's... It's such a cute little story, but there's no way that's true in my daily life. And Jesus comes to us and says, touch me. How does that happen? I mean, isn't Jesus, you know, like off in heaven somewhere? No, he's right here. Every Sunday at 10 o'clock, Jesus gathers the body of Christ comes together and we can examine each other's wounds. We can see where we've been pierced by the powers of this world. And in that moment we can see the healing that Jesus gives us and the hope that he empowers us with. And we can say, my Lord and my God, Jesus isn't off killing time in heaven, off somewhere playing ping-pong, waiting for God to send him to come again. He's present in us, with us, through us, because of us, in spite of us. He's here right now. And his wounds are evident on our lives. And we have the opportunity to touch one another and realize our wounds and know that God has raised us from the dead. And then we can affirm with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Doubt doesn't disqualify us from the experience of resurrection. Doubt leads us to the experience of resurrection. Caravaggio's famous painting about the incredulity of St. Thomas is a powerful masterpiece. And if we were looking at a really lighter uh, print of that, I've always got to remember to post the lighter prints on the PowerPoint we would see Thomas's face in detail looking not passive but stunned as he touches Jesus. Surprise and amazement and conviction all come together in Caravaggio's Thomas. And it reminds us that we go on a trajectory in life, from faith to mission to doubt to belief. We come to faith in Christ and we enter into what he tells us to do, and then life happens, and we struggle. And like Thomas, we can come to a point of touching the very wounds of Jesus, and experiencing belief again. Resilient discipleship, our triumph as resilient disciples, then rests on knowing and doing three things. First of all, realizing that God never abandons us. Jesus never lets us go. Now, I know how churchy that sounds. God never abandons us. Well, why do I feel so God-forsaken? Well, at the risk of going from preaching to meddling, could it be that we haven't paid attention to our life together as Christ's body? Because that's the second point that comes out of these texts. God calls us not to abandon one another. You don't want to feel God forsaken? 10 o'clock Sunday morning, be here. Because that's where Jesus is resident. And Jesus is everywhere, I know. But when we gather as the body of Christ, we do something special. We do something countercultural. We do something out of the norm. We do something that has nothing to do with the conventional wisdom of the post everything world we face Monday through Saturday. We gather together and we say, Jesus is alive. He's alive in us. He's alive with us. He's alive through us. And we don't back off from that. Just because we don't feel like it. The fact that we gather as the body of Christ says, we can be healing to each other and hope for each other. God never abandons us, and He calls on us never to abandon each other. Because our doubts are the bridge to faithful discipleship. And the only way we're going to deal with our doubts is together. When we hold on to our doubts, when we hide them, when we tuck them away in our lives, they take on a life of their own. They begin to sprout like weeds in our soul. And they begin to damage us. But when we are the body with each other, our doubts become the bridge to faithful discipleship. God never abandons us. because if God, And if God never abandons us, then our cynicism has no place. And we dare not abandon each other. You know, if we do not abandon each other, cynicism can't take root in our lives. And our doubts guide us to faith. And if our doubts bridge us from unbelief to belief, then cynicism can't work because we've adopted a new story. We've taken on a narrative. We've said there is more than what we can sense. There is more than what we see and smell and hear and taste and touch. There is a reality bigger and larger and deeper and more powerful than that. And I can't explain it all. And it's not always logical in a Twenty-first century postmodern Western sense, but it's true nonetheless. Thomas, cynic and doubter, discovers the essence of discipleship. Who am I going to serve? Am I going to serve myself and my my sensory needs and perceptions? Or am I going to serve this Jesus whose wounds are visible, whose wounds heal me? So this morning, some questions for reflection. The psalmist makes kind of a big deal about the stuff in his life and how that stuff is a marker of God at work in him. What stuff do you have? And I mean that not just in the material sense, but what stuff in the George Carlin sense? What stuff do you have that invites you into communion with God? Is your stuff a barrier to communion with God? Or or do you realize that that stuff comes as a gift from God's hand for you to be generous with? Secondly, how have you embodied, how have you incarnated God's mission of forgiveness recently? And how have your doubts led you to a deeper walk with Christ? We all say, you know, what the world needs now is love, sweet love but if we really want love, Mother Teresa said, we must learn how to forgive. How do we do that? How does our stuff and our lives together and our doubts all conspire to make us the forgiving, loving people God would have us be? One more thing. Maria, uh, Puccini says, uh, Resilience is the courage to not let your mistakes define your journey. The courage to not let your mistakes define your journey. That was certainly Thomas's story. The rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, is that Thomas went from cynic and doubter turned believer into missionary and that the church in South India was founded by Thomas. When Jesuit missionaries landed on the shores of South India in the 1600s, they found Christians already there. Because Thomas, as they tell the story, came and presented the gospel to them. Whether that's the truth or not, we don't know. We don't have, you know, good historical records that prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt. We just know that when the Jesuits showed up in Goa in 1600, there was a church already present. The Mar Toma Church. The Church of Thomas, worshiping Jesus. Thomas went from the part-time disciple who showed up when it was convenient to the apostle who went the furthest to share the good news. That's what can happen in our lives when we move from cynicism and despair in our brokenness, trusting only in what we sense, and turn to that which makes no sense. Gospel of Jesus, that in his life and death, in his resurrection, we have new life. Thomas goes from being a cynic to being a saint. What's our choice this morning? Psalm 16 and the story of Thomas, Jesus' commission to be a people of forgiveness, are reminders to us, powerful reminders to us, that God is at work in our lives. Whatever we may think the present circumstances in our lives are like, God is at work in our lives, never abandoning us, asking us to never abandon one another and allowing our doubts to be the bridge that brings us from the cynicism of the world we live in to the hope of the world that God is ushering in. Thanks be to God for his word. Amen.